Vincent Bevins is a, an American journalist who is speaking to me today from lockdown in Sao Paulo. Uh, he has worked as a reporter for the Financial Times in London, as a foreign correspondent for the Los Angeles Times in Brazil, and after moving to the Indonesian capital of Jakarta in 2017 to cover Southeast Asia for the Washington Post, has written a book available in the UK from today, 11th of June, entitled The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. Vincent, huge thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. We'd be remiss not to address the reason we're talking about this book at such great distance, rather than at your favorite restaurant, as we would be in better circumstances. Last time I checked, about a week ago, confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Brazil were closing in on something like 400,000, and deaths were climbing to above 25,000. The US uh, had meanwhile banned flights from Brazil. I'm a bit behind the curve here. Can you give us a sense of life in Sao Paulo at present? Yeah, I wasn't supposed to be here. Um, I moved back to London in the middle of 2019 to finish work on this book. And then I came to Sao Paulo to do one story. And then the plan was to report another story from Chile and then back to London. But when the pandemic hit, uh, I just decided it was the most responsible thing to do was just stay stay put rather than get on a plane. And um, as you point to, Brazil now may be approaching, who knows if we've already surpassed, the United States is the worst location for the pandemic on planet Earth. And a large, large reason for this is the intentional and blatant irresponsibility of President Jair Bolsonaro, who's gone to war with everybody that has tried to fight this pandemic. He lost, he lost two health ministers in, in, in um, less than a month. And these are both uh, people he appointed. These were fellow right wingers. These were not like, you know, deep state uh, health ministers. So I've been sort of keeping put in downtown Sao Paulo. Um, the scene around my apartment is not uh, a nice one. Um, there was always some homeless um, people. Uh, there's a lot more. Um, and, and so there's it's, you see an explosion of sort of suffering around. Um, and I come to this little uh, abandoned office where I have Internet to um, to do my best to you know, promote the book and stay in touch with the outside world. But, you know, everyone's um, everyone's getting through it, you know, day to day pretty well. Like we all, you know, fell into a routine. But Sao Paulo is on. Uh, a, an official semi-lockdown has been for a few months, and the public, the public system, because um, there is kind of an NH-style uh, health system, although it's much worse than um, what you have, the actual NHS. They are really bracing to be hit hard soon. So we're all just, you know, living, taking it one day at a time, and trying to, trying to work on our personal projects and, you know, live life. Wow. Okay. So, so is the rise in homelessness the result of people losing their homes, or is it more the desperation of the already homeless on the streets of Sao Paulo? No, it's new people. It's wow. new people. So, so That's downtown terrible. Sao Paulo. Yeah. No, it's it's not very good. I mean, it's not good. For a while, it was very really. Uh, there were some dark scenes downtown for a while. Um, like I, for the first time in eight years that I've been based out of downtown Sao Paulo, I felt a little bit scared. There were kind of roving gangs. Now there's enough people. That it's not just uh, scary; it's just it's scary and and depressing. But no, you can tell that there's new people. So so you have to imagine um, that a lot of them lost their, uh, you know, they were probably just barely keeping keeping it together at some kind of place or another, and then lost the ability to pay that rent or to stay indoors when the uh, pandemic destroyed the economy. It is a rough time for Sao Paulo, absolutely. It certainly sounds like it. 
Now, you wrote this book, as I understand it, uh, to challenge many of the collectively held assumptions about what exactly took place during the Cold War. Specifically, you give an account of the methods by which many of the poorest countries on Earth after the Second World War, seeking freedom from colonization, were gradually and often swiftly and brutally made to conform to the US-led economic order. You make clear in the introduction that the book is not an attempt to position good guys against bad guys, but rather as a response to the fact that history is nearly always written by the winners. Um, how was the story of the Cold War conveyed to you as you were growing up in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I wasn't on a crusade myself. I, I, when I got to Indonesia to cover all of Southeast Asia, I, I didn't get there with the idea of trying to change anyone's mind about anything. It's just that... This massacre that happened in Indonesia in 1965 and the story of the interrelated violence um, that sprung out from it was so obviously present in everything that I was reporting on and so obviously misunderstood and underappreciated in the West that I wanted to tell that story. And I realized very quickly that whether I liked it or not, the truth of that story contradicted a lot of very deeply held assumptions about the Cold Wars in the English-speaking world. And and um, to answer your question directly, I think I was probably raised thinking that the Cold War was a battle between two forces of equal size that 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 um, went to war directly with each other over who was going to to run the world. And and uh, the Soviet Union was very malicious and and in its attempt to run the whole world the united states was very uh benevolent and um freedom affirming in its attempt to contain this challenger and the good guys won um whereas that that side of the stories exists you know you can you can tell it that way um with facts but it leaves out a very big part of the story, which is the vast majority of humanity that lives in the former colonized world, what used to be called the third world. And um, once you bring all of planet Earth onto the scene, uh, once you tell that story, treating each, each human being as equal rather than just making it a story between elites in Moscow and Washington, I think it emerges that the Cold War was primarily fought not between uh, the first world and the second world, but between the first world and the third world. And the the ways that the first world um, imposed the order taking shape upon the nations that emerged from European colonization from 1945 to, to 2000 was in some ways benevolent and sometimes some ways it was in involved cooperation. But in many, many cases, far more than we recognize, I think, when countries got out of line from the standpoint of Washington, uh, they were crushed back into line very swiftly. And sometimes if they couldn't be crushed back into line, they were just crushed and that was enough. This book will be very educative, I think, for people who, while they may feel themselves to be familiar with events like the Vietnam War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Bay of Pigs and so forth, would probably struggle to recall practically anything that happened in countries like Indonesia and Brazil during this period, which you go into a lot of detail on. I mean, I suppose people will already be asking, well, what did happen? Could you sum it up? Yeah, absolutely. The The book tells the story of the U.S.-assisted mass murder of approximately one million innocent civilians in Indonesia in 1965. And this was one of the major turning points of the Cold War, I think probably the most important, quote-unquote, victory for the West and the project that the West believed uh, it was, you know, and the, and the and the goals that the West believed in at the time, 
And this success was so obvious to allies of Washington or other right-wing forces or potential allies of Washington that they took lessons from what happened in Indonesia. They they made their own copycat programs. They were they drew inspiration from Jakarta um, as their own uh, mass murder operations came to be entitled. So in in Chile and Brazil, most famously, you had uh, the the use of the word Jakarta to indicate mass murder programs that they wanted to carry out against leftists in their own countries to move forward their own projects of authoritarian capitalism and and they did and they were successful and the when they looked at Indonesia and, and looked and thought that they could do that and get away with it they were right they absolutely got away with it the United States gave them backing um, the in in total I found that at least 20 U.S. allied countries carried out intentional mass murder programs against unarmed civilians for being leftists. And uh, if you include those programs and all of the and the and the casualties from war resulting from anti anti you know as I call Washington's anti communist crusade, it's 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 millions of innocent people. And I think that the, this violence is was such a fundamental part of the way that the Cold War was won that it shaped the order that came afterwards. And this is the, the world we live in today. And of course, that is what the title of the book, The Jakarta Method, really refers to, isn't it? The state-organized extermination of civilians who oppose the construction of capitalist authoritarian regimes loyal to the United States. Yes. Okay. Um, you start the book with a very helpful backstory to this by describing the three tiers of development in which the world emerged from the Second World War. Could you perhaps set the scene for the story that you tell for us? Yeah, I think, you know, this, although this term third world has fallen out of fashion in the English language because of the derogatory way that many people used it in English, um, I think it is really helpful to remember what the first and second and third worlds were at, at the end of World War II, the new order that emerged from that catastrophic conflict. And um, of course, the United States emerged from that conflict as the most powerful country that had ever existed. Uh, and the first world was the United States. The Western European former imperial powers, the, the, the countries that had dominated most of the world directly for the last few hundred years, and basically Japan. So it was a, a small group of very rich countries, all of whom had engaged in direct colonialism. The second world was Moscow and the areas that it controlled. So the USSR and the parts of Central and Eastern Europe that the Red Army had occupied or really liberated from Hitler, but it was not yet clear if they were going to liberate it or if they were going to impose their own their own order. And then you had the Third World, which is the vast majority of humanity, and these are people that had lived under direct colonial rule for hundreds of years. They were getting their freedom for the first time or still struggling to get their freedom because the UK or France or Holland refused to give up control and were, were fighting to to hold on. And this term, third world, was in its first iteration an entirely optimistic, forward-thinking, inspirational concept of unity. The idea was that you would bring together the peoples of the former colonial world. They would take their place on the on the world stage. They would they would be equals to the white countries that had um, exploited them for hundreds of years, and they would transform the globe, uh, you know, in in accordance with their own interests. This often meant moving away from capitalism. Capitalism in their eyes was very often associated with the the imperialist control of their countries. 
And the these countries came together to a very large extent under the leadership of the president of Indonesia, a man named Sukarno, who organized a conference of the peoples of Africa and Asia in 1955 in Bandung. That's right. I want to get to that in just a moment. Um, the book, of course, tells the story of the CIA, how it was created just after the end of the Second World War with the signing into law of the National Security Act by President Harry Truman, and that it very much aspired to function as its British counterpart MI6 had since 1909. What was the CIA's original purpose? Yeah, so like I said, the the US came out of World War II, the the most powerful country in history, but it wasn't really ready for this, right? It didn't have a clandestine service. It didn't have a spy agency. It didn't have all of the kinds of secret organizations that empires usually have. And MI6 um, at this time is the best example in the world. And they decided to create one. I mean, officially, the goal of the Central Intelligence Agency was to provide intelligence to the President of the United States. But very quickly, they also created a covert operations department led by a man named Frank Wisner, who was very, very committed to the destruction of communism, even more than the other people in the CIA at the time, um, committed to taking on the Soviet Union wherever wherever it was operating or wherever they could pretend that it was operating. And and these were upper-class, blue blood is the term we use in like the Northeast United States, cosmopolitan liberals that went to private boarding schools based on Eton. They very much wanted to be like MI6. They very much wanted to be like the British upper class. They very much liked James Bond novels. To, right. you know, to an ex- to, they like really and, – and they were given a lot of resources and a lot of freedom to operate around the world fighting quote-unquote communism. And, and their first attempt to do this was to take on Eastern Europe, to actually go after the Eastern Bloc. They failed repeatedly. They were not only infiltrated by Soviet spies, they were um, often looked down upon by MI6 for being sort of uh, incompetent. They just couldn't get anything done. They were they, – they absolutely failed at confronting what we could call real communism. So they turned to the third world. Um, and even, even sympathetic historians of the CIA note that the reason they kind of turned south is because they just couldn't get anything done. When it came to the actual Stalinist regime with its with its own secret service and um, clandestine police and so on. Reading this part of the book, I was reminded of an essay by Gore Vidal uh, called The National Security State. After Truman sort of proposed that the U.S. use the National Security Act to police Russia's every border, I'm quoting here, there is no regime too reactionary for us provided it stands in Russia's expansionist path. There is no country too remote to serve as the scene of a contest which may widen until it becomes a world war. So you kind of get the sense there of how this agency, based on this piece of legislation, was very much born out of a a paranoid fear of losing control. No, I think that quote is really interesting because it points to a kind of decision that had to be made. And who knows, who knows if it was always inevitable that it was going to go this way. But I think the United States, as it, as it emerged from 1945, had two sort of two, two legacies in it, in its, within itself, you know. On the one hand, we had the revolutionary tradition of saying that every country has a right to stand up for itself and to throw off the colonial yoke and, and that every human being has rights, right? On the other hand, we were a deeply racist settler colony that carried out genocide in order to take over the the vast majority of North America. We were the allies and cultural cousins, if not even closer, of Western European imperial powers. And it was a real sort of fork in the road moment. Were we in 1945 going to emerge as the most powerful country 
and stay true to these revolutionary ideals? Were we going to stay true to the, the, the legacy of 1776? Or are we going to sort of fall into the same structural position that Europe had occupied for a long time, which is to exert direct colonial imperial control over much of the globe? And even people in the third world that were communists, even radical opponents of capitalism, hoped that we might go the first route. And that, of course, leads us into another crucial part of this story, which is the Bandung Conference of 1955, which was kind of set up to appeal to that choice that the states had, that ability to see its own past in the possible futures of other countries. This was the meeting of 29 countries that made up the so-called third world, together representing about 1.5 billion people over half the world's population. Yeah, this was a hugely important moment. Um and it was a surprisingly successful one, even for people that lived through it. And this is, you know, there, I, I met a lot of people that did remember just how big and inspiring this moment was. Um, leaders like Sukarno in Indonesia and Nehru in India brought together, to a very large extent, the peoples of the post-colonial world. The, it's, it was technically the Afro-Asian People's Conference. Um, Brazil uh, took part as an observer. And the whole idea was to come together and say, we don't need to form an alliance with the United States. We don't need to be in a direct relationship of, of, of um, servitude to anyone. We're going to stand up and form our own alliance, which means that we, we, we look out for each other. We want, to, we want to insist on our right to be fully independent, insist on our right to, do, to trade with everyone, to help everyone. And insist on our right to change the rules of the global economy, which they believed had been stacked against them by hundreds of years of colonialism. And, and President Sukarno gave a speech in which he said that the conference itself landed on exactly the 180th anniversary of the battles of Lexington and Concord, major events in the American Revolutionary War. Uh, and he did this in order to make the point that America, too, had freed itself from colonial rule and that these countries gathered there on that day were demanding nothing more radical than the same, both in principle and spirit. His message was designed to bridge the divide between the first and third world. Why didn't it land that way for President Eisenhower, Wisner and others who were watching all of this take place from a distance? Um, I, that's a very good question. I think that there are several complementary explanations, and I don't know how, how much weight to give to each, but I think um, there was the really fanatical belief that communism was somehow a threat and then you know they're americans too you know they they don't understand why anybody wouldn't just want to join in an alliance with them they 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 really in a very naive and stupid and racist way did not see how they appeared to the peoples of the third world you know if you talk to indonesians that were active in politics in the 50s and 60s and 70s they would be like oh yeah well the united states uh well let's see that's obviously a, a white settler colony they're obviously racist i mean i've seen them i've seen the way they treat black people and what they did to the native americans they're in an alliance with our former colonial overlords um let's see what they do i don't really want to join in an alliance with them just because they say they want to uh the soviet union never did anything to us we'd rather we'd rather remain maintain our independence we believe that we have earned our right to have independence from the American perspective, it was like, well, why don't you want to be, you know, in this very deeply American way, believed that anybody that didn't immediately join up with them to the hilt must have some devious intentions or they just didn't get how, how good we were. 
right? There was that naive, that there was that sort of racist naive, naivete in among the foreign policy in the United States. There was this fanatical desire to fight communism wherever it might be or might not be. And then you had, you know, real politic and, and the the nature of a liberal capitalist capitalist state. You know, powerful economic interests exert more influence over the US government than regular voters do. And powerful economic interests often had reasons to oppose people opposing US hegemony in Guatemala or Iran or Indonesia. And usually when you really saw where you really saw intervention was when these two things came together, or all three really. When the the local leader was perceived as being anti-American or irrational, two that some big company in the United States was putting pressure on the government to to sort out this problem for them, and three when they could see the shadowy hand or potential communist revolution somewhere distant in the future. Even and if they had to if they had to do some imagining to see that shadow dancing on the wall, they would usually find a way to do it. But when all those three things came together, you probably were going to have the CIA operating in your country. And some of the uh, facts you relate about what the CIA was capable of inventing, particularly in one account, you talk about the myth of the Filipino vampire, the Aswan, right. how they how they created this fictional threat of uh, the return of this creature in order to explain the death of one member of a militia from that country. Yeah, it's insane, right? I mean, psychological warfare, you know, these guys, they thought they were very smart. These guys were Yale, you know, these guys thought that they were, you know, playing empire. Um, they had all the, all the, all the resources at their disposal and nobody was ever going to get them in trouble. And they thought they were really clever creating psychological warfare techniques to employ, employ against the peoples of the Philippines or Vietnam or the list goes on and on. But if you think about what this really is, this is really horrible. This is the, the use of a surface level knowledge of local religious and cultural traditions to terrorize people into abandoning the belief that a better world was possible. So because the Hux, the Hux were a rebellion. They fought the Japanese invaders in, in World War II. Uh, and just like you had in lots of other places after World War II, they did not want to give up and just let the old fascist collaborators take back over. Like Greece was a very uh, important example of this. They, they, they thought they had a right to shape the future of the Philippines. And, um, no, the U.S. wanted to give the country back to the feudal elites that had been our partners there since direct formal imperial control of the Philippines started in 1898. And yeah, they, they killed a member of the rebels, sucked the, the blood out of his body, put, um, holes in his neck and left um, at least in one case, the body out for locals to discover so that they could be terrorized. In Vietnam, we did something similar. I worked, I worked on Vietnamese um, psychological warfare with a really great German-Vietnamese artist named Sung Tu, that's S-U-N-G-T-I-E-U, on a horror tape that they made with um, the voices of Vietnamese ghosts talking from the, beyond the grave, trying to get the Viet Cong to give up. And they played this from helicopters flying over villages during the Vietnam War. And this is the behavior of a young, reckless, and arrogant imperial power, which is trying to use people's own beliefs to terrorize them into just giving up and accepting American hegemony. Well, it wasn't the only time the CIA used Hollywood techniques. No, CIA operated in close collaboration with the entertainment industry, as they yeah. as they still as they still do now. I mean, the CIA is is deeply involved in um, in consulting a lot of films, but this was a very different and more devious collaboration. Um, after the Bandung conference, they were trying to crush Sukarno and the Indonesian left in a, manner, in, in a number of ways. One way is that they tried to um, just pay off uh, the right-wing parties, just fund 
um, conservative Muslim parties that they would win elections that didn't work. Um, they organized an actual invasion of the country, bombing islands in the attempt to break it up in 1958. That didn't work. And in Hollywood, they, um, through a liaison, they contacted Bing Crosby and his brother to make a sex tape that would show, purportedly, that Sukarno had slept with a KGB agent in Russia and was now under the control of Moscow. Uh, they hired an actor, two actors, of course, but one actor that they were going to try to make look like Sukarno uh, with hair and makeup and a wig or who knows exactly. But they, it didn't end up being released, uh, and the story goes, because it wasn't convincing enough. But again, this is like... It's the it's the stuff of like a, a comedy movie, but at the same time they were trying to destroy a nation's respect for its founding father, in order to carry out some kind of half baked scheme based on an incredibly poor understanding of the region. I mean, it really speaks to the way in which America has ruled through images largely, but you rarely hear about it being used as a tactic of shock and awe. I suppose. No, now I think it's you know you know ideological hegemony. Uh, Global ideological hegemony is usually established these days through more subtle means, right? Like, probably, you know, that, that, that narrative that you asked me about of the Cold War, um, the one that I was, that I grew up with as, uh, an American in Southern California in the 80s and 90s, if, if it's not what everyone believes worldwide, everyone knows what it is, right? Because it's, it's baked into every American movie that gets played in theaters in, you know, China and Jakarta and everywhere. So, like, the, American ideological project, yeah, I think is deeply linked to Hollywood. And in these cases I point to in the book in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there's some horrifying uses of, of techniques against populations in ways that no one knows about. And in these days, it's more like, no, they just get the actual CIA to to consult on a film in exchange for access and in, in exchange for expertise consulting. A lot of Americans watching the third world movement, deeply suspicious, feeling deeply threatened by what they were seeing. But of course, there was another figure in this story, the American ambassador who got to know Sukarno quite well, Howard Palfrey Jones, who not only saw things very differently to the political establishment in Washington, but also opposed the CIA's involvement in Indonesian politics. Uh, he was described by his colleagues as a, a gentle, though perhaps naive individual. How did you perceive him? Yeah, he was kind of the... Um the emblematic case of like uh, a good-hearted, optimistic American who perhaps was naive about the possibilities of his own office in, in the long term. So he, you know, he wasn't like a hot-headed soldier that came straight out of World War II that wanted to fight communism. He'd been he'd been a journalist in the United States. He'd gone head-to-head with the KKK. He was very proud of his anti-racism. He was very curious about um, foreign cultures. He really. When he got to Indonesia, he really wanted to get to know the local people. He really wanted to understand the complexities of the country. He very often corrected the people back in Washington when they sort of portrayed the country in black and white terms. He, he thought it was very insufficient to slot a country as complex as Indonesia into um, this, this sort of very uh, reductive framework. And as a result, when the CIA invasion that he doesn't even know about fails, they adopt a lot of his deep on the ground knowledge of Indonesia to implement a new strategy of, of forming closer relationships with the military and forming deep ties with parts of the Indonesian state rather than taking it on in a very direct manner. His understanding of what this would mean was that the United States would maintain a long-term alliance with Sukarno and Indonesia and avoid direct confrontation. But in the end, it, it, it was used in a way that I imagine he would have never 
countenanced, uh, but he was he was removed right before the really catastrophic events of 1965. So let's talk about those events because the book covers so many countries, so many regimes, so many coups that perhaps to focus in on the events that stood out most to you, the ones that made you uh, most angry, most shocked as you wrote the book. Yeah, I, I thought I've kind of had an idea. I, I, you know, I, I was like, oh, yeah, I know I'm a journalist in Latin America and Southeast Asia. I know the extent to which, you know, we made bad alliances. I think that that was the, that was the, that's the jump that I hadn't been prepared for. The jump between the established narrative, which is like, yeah, 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 you know, we had to make alliances with some unsavory characters, and then those unsavory characters did some things that, uh, you know, mistakes were made by them, but we had to make alliances with someone. Whereas the real truth was, to a large extent, we were pushing the worst things that those people did, and the things that the, the things that those people did were not incidental to the outcome. They were necessary to the outcome. They shaped the outcome. The outcome that we got was only possible because of the violence that the U.S. pushed and was profoundly shaped by that violence. It was the, the stuff I thought was kind of on the margins of, of the story of U.S. hegemony, where it's, whereas it was really central. And the extent to which you basically, there was, there was almost no way out. Like I didn't, I thought it was, ah, yeah, there was this country, that country. But from 1945 to 2000, if you got too close to socialism or if you stood up if you try too hard to be to carve a path that was independent of Washington, your chances of survival were really, really low. And it didn't always come right away, but usually somehow or another you were crushed or pushed aside. And the only cases, the only cases that um, sort of stand out in opposition to this are the countries that got really sort of authoritarian and defensive in a way, which I think a lot of people in the West don't find anything. Um, to be inspired by countries that really took a defensive position, countries you know, like North Korea or China or Cuba. To survive, perhaps, you had to become sort of a, you know, turn your whole country into a, a, a barracks, into a, into a bulwark against the inevitable Western intervention. Right. Democratically voting for a government was not enough. It wasn't about democracy. Yeah, democracy was was um, seen as easily discardable in the service of anti-communism, right? So, and in some cases, it was worse if they were democratic, because if they were, if the socialist projects in the third world were democratic, that would mean that other countries would want to copy them, and there'd be no way to demonize or crush them. Uh, and this was explicitly the case in Guatemala in '54 and Chile in 1970. We know behind the scenes, U.S. officials were saying that. The, the problem was not that they would become authoritarian Stalinist regimes, but that the success of a democratic left-wing project would be inspiring to their neighbors. In the introduction to the book, you explain your methodology of gathering declassified information and the testimonies that went into telling the story from the various people you interviewed. And you tried to resist speculation, you say, about things which still cannot be said with certainty about what happened during these years. Um, what is it we still do not know that leaves you, as the author, most dissatisfied? So we don't know what the CIA was doing um, in the run-up to the, the mass murder in 1965. We don't know to what extent that they were trying to provoke the clash between the left and the right that ended up happening. We don't know to what extent they might have been in cooperation with Suharto or any other members of the Indonesian military. We don't know who came up with the idea to kill um, the Indonesian left. We don't know if that emerged after they started taking people prisoner or we don't, or if this was perhaps a plan that existed for a long time. 
And that is all stuff that we could just, and we, I, I believe we have a right to know now. I mean, I asked the CIA to tell me, you know, they said, no, it's still classified. Um, the, the very nature of the September 30th movement, this uprising that caused the much, much larger clash in 1965 is still hidden from us. And as you, as you point out, yeah, I, I avoid all speculation or conspiracy theory in the book because what is already rock solid is shocking, is so shocking that I just want to let that speak mm. for itself. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of ripe territory for, 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 you know, theorizing about conspiracy because we know that there was conspiracy. You know, why was it that in Chile in 1970, the method they used to try to stop Allende taking over was the exact same one that was used in Indonesia in 1965? You know, was there some kind of cooperation across um, the international anti-communist movement? Was, were U.S. officials giving them hints? You know, what's, why are there so many coincidences in the ways that these regime change operations take place from country to country. But the really big hole at the center of the narrative is the September 30th movement. And people have been working on it for 50, 60 years. People that speak 10 Indonesian languages and have, have examined every last word and every last document. And we still don't really know what that was. Tell us more about that movement, just to give context to what is still unknown. Yeah, so um, when they removed Howard Jones, that that ambassador that you spoke of as being committed to a fuller appreciation of Indonesia. They brought in a new ambassador whose obvious job was to precipitate regime change. This was his special specialty. He had done this in South Korea. Um, and it was clear to the Indonesian left and to everybody that the United States was going to push for some kind of a removal of the, the regime. Behind the scenes, we know that MI6 and CIA were covertly agitating to cause a clash between the unarmed Communist Party and the very well-armed military. We, we don't know exactly what they were doing, but we know that what they wanted to happen and what they were trying to make happen was some kind of an excuse for the right wing to crack down on the left, some kind of an, a quote-unquote abortive coup that would allow the U.S.-backed military to crush the unarmed Communist Party and blame it on them, say it was their fault. Now, rumors are swirling throughout Jakarta all throughout 1965 of plots and counterplots, and it's it's all very cloudy. No one knows what's really going on, and everybody's suspicious of everybody. Then, on the morning of October 1st, 1965, Indonesia wakes, wakes up to radio reports that the quote-unquote September 30th movement has taken, has kidnapped high-level officers that were planning a right-wing coup uh, in, in, in treason, uh, in, in, you know, committing treachery against President Sukarno, and that, oh, we, we have some plan to sort this out, and, you know, uh, we got them. Immediately, General Suharto, a right-wing general that was not kidnapped in that early morning raid, takes over the country and crushes this, this September 30th movement, which was led by military uh, officers and carried out by uh, their military subordinates. We still do not know why. The people that they ended up, that they took, uh, that they arrested ended up murdered and stuffed into a well. We still do not know why Suharto himself was not kidnapped. We still do not know if the Communist Party had any knowledge of what was going to happen or if they, um, just sort of tacitly gave approval or if they helped to plan or if they didn't know at all. And we don't know why it was so easy for Suharto to immediately take control back over the country, ignore direct orders from President Sukarno, who still should have been the leader of the country, and establish complete control over Indonesia. Um, 
those the 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 various theories as to whether or not the September 30th movement was a false flag operation, whether it was a very poorly carried out uh, military uprising, whether there was some minor communist uh, uh, participation, there are more theories than there there are dozens of theories, and none of them none of them is satisfactory to everyone. Weighing the sum of what went into this book in your mind, do you see clear moments in that timeline where things could have turned out very differently than they did? One, you know, one of the main characters, Francisca, when she moved from Indonesia to to Amsterdam after her husband was taken prisoner and never released, she was shocked to find that, oh, here in the rich white world, socialists and communists are allowed to participate in democracy. Americans just let them do that here. And her interpretation of that was, oh, well, this is the consequence of racism. They don't let us do what they let the Europeans do. And she looked at Italy and France, where communist parties had significant participation in parliament, but they never, of course, ran the country. And from her perspective, I think you could ask, what would happen if the, if the, if the U.S. in this moment of new hegemony had allowed simply for the countries in the third world that had left-wing movements to just have them. Could you imagine a situation in which the United States said, okay, if the leftists win because they have the most popularity, we're going to allow that and we're also and we're going to push for the maintenance of elections in case the left gets unpopular and we're going to push for democracy and human rights no matter who wins and you know, if if our side loses then we accept that. Could I imagine that leading to a better outcome? Yeah. Could I also imagine worse outcomes in the Cold War if the U.S. had acted sort of naively in certain circumstances? Yes. But I think the question would not be to enter Indonesian history like at, on September 29th, 1965 and try to solve that problem. But if, you know, what if there had been no? Don't do Iran. Don't do Iran 53. Don't do Guatemala 54. Then the countries of the third world might be less suspicious of the United States. And then the United States might be in a position to say, oh, well, yeah, okay, uh, have social democratic leaders and we'll we'll do our best to make deals with those governments as to how much our companies can extract and if we have to negotiate that's fine but hopefully in the long term you know voters will choose the the leaders that make the best economic promises i don't know maybe that's hopelessly naive but i I think you can imagine that path it's it's it is possible to imagine well we began this conversation by talking about those choices that the young republic had And the book makes it especially interesting for this reason to think about the way in which national populism today can be read almost as a a process by which advanced capitalist Western nations, not just the United States, but nations that have realized the limits of the liberal economic order they once stood for, um, have constructed new stories about themselves, which in the case of America first suggests that America was never meant to be this expansionist empire. Yeah, it's really interesting, Trump, right? Because on the one hand, he says like... It is our right to crush our enemies wherever we see them. We don't, you know, screw human rights. If, 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 if it will help America to smash Bolivia, we will do so. And then in the same breath, he'll say, well, we also shouldn't be so involved around the rest of the world. It's, it's bad for us. So you have this kind of double inversion where the hegemonic discourse on both parties for a very long time was, oh, we don't have a right to screw over other countries, but we should be engaged everywhere in a benevolent fashion. And he says, no, we have a right but we should pull back for our own good. I think 
Notably, he doesn't have actually enough control over the, for, the, the U.S. government or maybe he doesn't have the energy to actually govern sufficient to cause that kind of a pullback. Right? He kind of says it, but it didn't really actually happen. And this is I think speaks to the nature of the U.S. foreign policy establishment itself is that unless there was a really concerted effort on his part to pull back from the rest of the world, the power of inertia is quite important. But at the same time, no matter what Donald Trump says, the U.S. is in relative decline, right? Like we're, we're less powerful than we were. In 2005, and in 2005, we were less powerful than we were in 1995, and it's very likely we're going to be less powerful in 2030 than we are now in 2020. So that forces a, I think, a global reconsideration of the nature of U.S. US hegemony, what it meant, how good it was, if it can be improved upon, and what might come next. I mean, I think that the U.S. the U.S. sort of New York Times reading liberal is in sort of an identity crisis about the nature of our country. And the rest of the world is noticing that there's cracks in the liberal order and thinking, okay, well, is this good or is this going to lead to something worse? Or can we sort of jump into those cracks and, and try to forge something better? But um, whatever it is about this moment, it's forcing a reconsideration of, of, US, of the U.S. role in the world. Speaking of the New York Times reading liberal, there was a story uh, from the top of this week about the resignation of James Bennett, the opinion editor of the paper, for publishing an op-ed by Republican Senator Tom Cotton, which called for the U.S. military to be deployed on the streets of North America to quell the recent riots uh, after the killing of George Floyd. Now, I know you had a reaction to this on social media. What went through your head when you saw that article in the MIT? Well, it's funny because I published an op-ed one week before saying that the, 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 the headline was the liberal order was built with blood to say that despite the stories we tell ourselves, the order that exists is the result of the exercise of raw power. And then a week later, you have a prominent Republican say the exact same thing, but just like in a celebratory fashion being like, no, screw this. We're going to crush the people in the streets. Um, and so in a very weird way, he was like, like a, totally agreeing with me, yeah. um, but coming from the exact opposite perspective. Yeah, it was an opportune juxtaposition. Yeah, and like Barack Obama moved to Indonesia in 19, just after the mass murder, and he moved there because his stepfather was called back to Indonesia um, as a result of that mass murder. He was called back to serve the Indonesian military in the wake of the, the U.S. backslaughter. And in um, Dreams for My Father, or Dreams of My Father, Barack Obama's um, very well-written book, he describes this process of him and his mother realizing that, oh, out here, power is not hidden. Out here, power is in your face. In this part of the world, it's not dressed up nicely why you have to do what you have to do. No one pretends that you're doing it because you believe you want to do it. Uh, it it's, it's made very clear that if you don't do it, there's going to be consequences for you. And I think the moment of American quote-unquote exceptionalism, maybe to a large extent, is that, is that we, we were free from seeing power for what it was because it never really never never really smacked us in the face before and you know again regular americans do think this way too you know if you talk to like your average guy in like a sports bar in the middle of the country they will think that the cia is bad right it's it'll be more the like respectable liberal outlets that have been for a very long time committed to this idea that um our power is benevolent uh, and, and i think that you know, to some extent it was benevolent, but I think to the extent that it wasn't, I think it's good that we recognize that. And for better or worse, that Republican was Tom Cotton, um, did his part to um, make power visible like it was to Barack Obama in Indonesia in the 60s. 
And you quote Lolo Suatoro, stepfather to Barack Obama, as saying that, uh, quote, guilt is a luxury only foreigners can afford. And later you write that the book itself is a product of the good fortune placed on you as an American citizen. That this book was written primarily from conscience, I think, makes clear that you've used that good fortune very admirably. And I'd recommend this book to all listeners, The Jakarta Method, a brilliant work of revision in uh, Cold War history. So I'd just like to say thanks again for coming on, Vincent, and thanks for writing this book. Oh, thank you so much for, for, for having me and for, and for taking a look. Um, yeah, I mean, anybody that, that takes the time to, to look at this book, I really, I really appreciate When you have the freedom to leave your apartment and roam the streets freely, where will be the table at which you sit to reconnect with the neighborhood, local businesses, people who run these places? Where will your first pit stop be? Yeah, so right across the street. It's ironic because you can still get their food, but it's not the same because they're doing delivery. Right across the street from me is a, is a, is a spot called Almanara. And the Lebanese community in Sao Paulo has been, has been here for a very long time. Um, they're very influential in political circles. And, and this is one of the very old school Lebanese places with like fresco – um, fresco depictions of Lebanon in these in this really high ceilinged grand uh, dining room where you can just get like great Lebanese food across the street from me in the heart of downtown. And while I've you know while you can sort of order the takeout, it's not the same. Uh, Al Manaro is a great spot and a great part of like the real Palestino culinary tradition that I would be. I'm very much looking forward to sitting down at. Thanks again, Vincent, for coming on. And uh, next time you're in uh, London, perhaps we can go out for a pint. Yeah, please. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I'm trying to get back. Trying to get back to London now. I think I'm allowed to come back, but I mean, I'll have to. I'll have to go through mandatory quarantine, which is totally fine, and you know, it's. I should have to. I'm biding my time to find a way, which is responsible, to come back and start covering Western Europe again. But uh, absolutely, I look forward to it. No problem. All right, it was great to speak to you. All right, you too.